Today's great philosophical question we're going to look at is what is mankind's greatest problem? What is mankind's greatest problem? It's a very important question. There's all kinds of ideas out there on that. In fact, I was I was looking on the internet uh, this week and I found this Oxford philosopher by the name of Nick Bostrom. He gave a lecture on humanity's greatest problems and here were his top three greatest problems of all humanity. This was rather interesting. Number one was death. He said, number one, mankind's or humanity's greatest problem is death. In fact, he said there were approximately 56 million people dying every year. 56 million. And with that comes all kinds of problems. Number two, he said human extinction. Human extinction. Well, if the man only read the Bible, this wouldn't be an issue, would it? God is preserving his earth and all the people on it. It's his place, and he's not going to allow it to be uh, to become extinct. But anyway, number three, this was very interesting. He spent the most time talking about this one. He said, life is not usually as wonderful as it could be. It's kind of funny when you think about that, but, but with that, uh, and a lot of people think that way. That's a big problem for a lot of people. It's one of the the reasons why so many people commit suicide. Because they love themselves too much. Instead of loving God with all, they love themselves. They worship themselves. And life is not as usually wonderful as it could be. So they commit suicide. That's a big problem. But those were his three. And, and I proceeded to look on the Internet thinking, well, what, what are other people saying about humanity or mankind's greatest problems? Well, here's some others do a quick search of the internet, you'll come up with many things, but apathy was one of them. Apathy, you know, the, the idea, you know, the, the no care kind of an attitude. People just don't do things because they don't care. Global warming, that was one of them. Of course, there's no scientific proof for that. In fact, the science shows otherwise, but anyway, that's a whole other issue. But uh, there's, there's people firmly convinced that the Earth is warming up and the polar ice caps are melting and all the islands are going to be swamped. Number six was politics. A lot of people are afraid of politics. They just don't like, they just don't like any governments and politics. They, you know, they, they just they, they think of them as big brother, rightfully so in many cases. But the other one was, number seven, was terrorism. Terrorism. People just don't like that. They're afraid of it. They just never know when the bomb's going to go off, so to speak, right? Or the plane's going to be hijacked and you're going to die. World famine is a, is a big problem. It certainly is a big problem. But can you rightfully say that it's the humanity's greatest problem? No. And I'll show you why in a moment. But anyway, number nine was the world economy. You know, we, the, the big talk nowadays is the... the huge debt crisis going on in our world, isn't it? The United States has been downgraded for the first time ever. Greece is belly up. Italy is going belly up. And they're so big they can't even be uh, bailed out. Germany, by the way, I just read this week, Germany's considering pulling out of the European Union. They're sick of bailing everybody out. France is going under. Ireland's going under, Portugal's going under, Spain's going under. You know, it's, it's a mess. The United States is a mess. The world's a mess. 
but that's not the world's greatest problem. But number 10, our greatest problems exist outside of us. Many people believe that, particularly those who are unbelievers and those who aren't saved believe our greatest problems exist outside of us. Many philosophers, psychologists, psychiatrists talk about, you know, the environment. All these problems outside of us is, is the reason that people have mental issues, mental problems. It's what's outside you. But God says our greatest problem is not outside us. God says our greatest problem is inside us. The Bible calls that problem sin. Sin. You say, what is sin? Well, the Bible defines it in many ways. The Bible talks about sin as a transgression of God's law. The Bible calls sin the lawlessness, going against God's law, God's rules, God's standard. In Genesis chapter 3, there's a tragedy that takes place, and it's just beyond words. We, we, we cannot fully comprehend it. Man's relationship to his creator, God, was completely severed. You see an illustration of that there, a very simple illustration. The course of human history was radically altered by sin. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, God originally created paradise. Humanity asserted itself against deity. And, and then as a result, the whole human race plunged headlong over the cliff of sin. It's not possible really for us to compute the, the trauma and the tragedy which have invaded our world since Genesis chapter 3. It's just unimaginable. The misery which sin has brought is beyond, beyond our puny comprehension. <laughs> so there's no understanding really of the rest of the Bible all the way from Genesis 3 and in, in, all the way into the book of Revelation. It just You're not going to understand the Bible until Genesis chapter 3 is understood. Because frankly, most of the Bible is not where Genesis 1 and 2 is. And so if we go wrong here, we will err in our interpretation of all the rest of the Word of God if we don't get this chapter right. And so if by the Spirit of God we can grasp the message of Genesis 3, we're not greatly going to err in the rest of the Bible. Well, this much is evident. Okay, If Genesis 3 is true, and it is, Genesis 3 is true, then both the scientists and the sociologists of our day are wrong. Did you hear me? The scientists are wrong, and the sociologists have totally got it wrong. Because Genesis 3 is true. The evolutionary scientists tell us that man is slowly but surely evolving into a perfect being. Are we? Is humanity getting better? No, we're getting worse. God says we... It would, in, in the end times, in the last days, read Timothy chapter 3, things would get worse, and it is. So this idea, you know, this very, you know, we begin low and we climb up to a great height. That's what some people believe. God tells us that he made man perfect, Genesis 1 and 2, but man was ruined. Man ruined himself. God tells us he made man very high, but he's fallen very, very low. So it's the exact opposite of what many people are saying today. So the sociologists, the psychologists, the educators, the philosophers of our world, they've been telling us for at least 100 years 
that man's problem is his environment. They've been trying to feed you the lie, the theory, that your problem is your environment. So change your environment, and then everything will be okay. God tells us our problem is our heart. God says the problem is our heart. Now today we're going to look at four points that are set before us here in Genesis chapter 3, okay? I don't normally do this, but here they are, okay? Here's the four points. This is our our path that we're going to follow for today, okay? Number one, we're going to look at the fall of mankind. Number two, the subtlety and the power of Satan. Three, the consequences of the fall. And then four, the gracious character of God. That's where we're going today. So number one, we're going to see here that Genesis 3 describes the fall of mankind. Genesis 3 describes the fall of mankind. So look at Genesis 3. Let's start reading in verse 1. Genesis 3, verse 1. These are the words of the living God, and he says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. We'll stop there for the moment. Now you need to understand something here. Man is not an independent, self-governing creature. God did not make man that way. He didn't make, uh, man did not make himself, did he? God made man. And so he, we owe our being to God. Man was made to serve God, glorifying his creator. Uh, and how, how are we supposed to do that? Through our obedience to the creator. So as a symbol of God's sovereignty and of man's responsibility, God put a tree. One tree was planted in the midst of the Garden of Eden, and man was not permitted to use that tree for himself. So there was only one rule if you will. One thing God said don't do, everything else God said you can do. You can read about that tree, by the way, in Genesis chapter 2. So the the only restriction that was placed on man's liberty was the fruit from that tree of the knowledge of the good, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, not that one. This tree symbolized the relationship in which man stood to God. Adam was created as an intelligent, very intelligent, responsible creature, but he was subject to the rule of God. He was not God. He couldn't do whatever he wanted to. He was subject to God. But soon we see Adam and the woman as well, they became self-seeking, self-willed, self-centered, self-serving rebels, didn't they? Well, how did that happen? How did that happen? Well, the scripture gives us Three things that that we need to understand to understand how did this happen. Number one, Satan tempted and deceived our mother Eve. Satan tempted and deceived our mother Eve. 
apparently Satan knew how God had created Adam and how he had made Eve from one of Adam's ribs. He knew that Eve was the weaker vessel. God had made her that way. He knew Adam's love for Eve. So what did he do? He, he sets his sights on Eve. He knew, he knew who to go for. He knew if he could get Eve, then Adam would also fall. And so he comes with great subtlety here. He's, that, he's, he's using the serpent here to deceive the woman. By the way, she's not named at this point. We don't even know her name at this point. She's just called the woman, Adam's wife. And so there's, there's several steps to her ruin that are very illuminating for us. And you need to, to take note of these because these help us to know the, how, how, our, how the tempter, our enemy the tempter, can attack us. He may not necessarily do it exactly like this, but you need to understand Satan's ways, okay? Understand his ways. That's, that's what we're going to do here, all right? Number one, Satan disguised himself. In verse 1, he, he's using the serpent. And the Bible says that the serpent is more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So it's a created creature. By the way, some people think the serpent uh, used to have legs and maybe even wings. You know, there's, there's all kinds of ideas on this that are interesting to think about. Apparently, it was normal for this serpent to talk. Maybe other creatures talked in the beginning. I don't know. I mean, we, we see in the Bible a donkey talking. Why should it be strange that uh, other creatures can talk? Apparently, God made some of the creatures to talk. This one's talking. Eve doesn't seem to be frightened by it. And she carries on this conversation with the serpent. But Satan's disguising himself here. Okay? Please don't think of Satan as, you know, the, the horns and the red suit, the pitchfork, and the tail sticking out the backside. Okay? That, that's not how Satan is. In fact, the Bible says that Satan is an angel of light. <coughs> he disguises himself here. He doesn't want you to, it to be obvious. But number two, Satan questioned God's word. He questioned God's word, and he still does this today. This is one of his main tactics. He says there in verse 1, Has God indeed said? With a question mark. He's questioning God's word. Number 3, Eve then heeded the tempter. She's listening. She, she immediately should have cut the conversation off right there. As soon as she, she heard God's word questioned, it should have, she should have said what Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. That's what she should have said. But no, Eve just kind of quietly listens as the wicked one is assaulting the word of God here. So the door was open when she began to discuss and debate what God had already revealed. By the way, you, you need to know that. This, this is what Satan does. He questions. He, he lead, tries to lead us, lead us into conversations, and then eventually we're, we're just fully sinning against God. That's what he does. This is one of his steps that he'll use in our lives. So don't carry on a conversation with your sin nature and Satan in the world. Those are your three enemies, by the way. The world, Satan, and your own indwelling sin. Those are the three enemies that you have to resist. Don't listen to them when they question God's word. Cut them off right there. Don't let them go any farther. Number four, Eve made additions 
to God's word. So not only did she, is she listening to Satan question God's word, now she starts adding to God's word. That's in verse 3. Because she says, neither shall you touch it. Did God say that? No, read chapter 2. God never said that part. God never said, don't touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't eat of it. And so what is she doing here? She's tampering with God's word. And by the way, that is always fatal. <laughs> read the end of Revelation. God says, don't add, don't take away, or I'm going to add to you the plagues in this book. It is a fatal thing to mess with God's word. So that's what she did. And by the way, it's just as evil to add our words to God's as it is to take away from God's word. Okay, both are just as bad. But number five, then Eve altered God's word. There's a logical progression here, by the way, when you think about this. But in verse 3, God said, In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Sorry, that was in chapter 2, verse 17. That's what God said. And then in, in chapter 3, verse 3, Eve says, Lest you die. The idea is, or we might die. Did God say that? No. So she's altering God's word. And then number six, Satan denied God's authority. So Satan's led her down the path, and now, and now he's just outright denying God's authority in verse four. He just says in verse four, you will not surely die. Did God say that? No. In fact, you read chapter two, God said, you will die. You will die. But no, Satan's just outright denying God's authority here. And then number seven, Satan attacked God's goodness. He attacked God's goodness. He's trying to make God to look like the bad person here. He's trying to make God look like the bad, you know, uh, the bad one here when he's not. You know, verse 5, for God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You know, God doesn't want you to have anything good. You know, he's just that mean father. You know, he's trying to withhold from you things that are good for you. Whoa. Was God doing that? No. So Satan's attacking God's goodness here. God's trying to protect them. Satan's trying to attack God's goodness. And number eight, Eve was tempted by the lust of the flesh. In verse six, because it says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Good for food. In other words, it was it was good for pleasure. It was pleasurable. It is the, as first John calls it in chapter two, the lust of the flesh. It was good for food. Now some commentators think that that maybe the maybe the certain the serpent grabbed whatever the fruit fruit was. We don't know what it is, by the way. Although a lot of pictures show it as an apple. But we don't actually know what it was, and it's not important. Uh, apparently, you know, some commentators say maybe the serpent grabbed it and ate it and says, you know, see? didn't do anything to me. I'm fine. I, did you see me die? No, it's good. It tastes really good. Here, have one. So, so she was tempted by the lust of the flesh. It was something pleasurable. It was good for food, and so she wanted it. Number two, the, the second part of the temptation here, I should say, he was tempted by the lust of the eyes. The idea is here, there was, there was possession that she didn't have and she wanted to have, the Bible says in verse 6, it was a delight to the eyes. She, she looked at it, she started gazing at it, and she started coveting something which she wasn't supposed to have. The Bible calls that the lust of the eyes. Number three, 
Eve was tempted by the pride of life. There was a position that she wanted that she didn't have. The Bible says in verse 6, it uh, desired to make one wise. Desired to make one wise. She wanted to be wise. It was a position that she, something she didn't have, she thought she could have if she, if she ate of that fruit. The Bible calls it the pride of life. And then the last point, number 11, Eve then rebelled against God. She rebelled against God. The Bible says in verse 6, she just took it. She took it. She disobeyed God. Total, outright rebellion against God. So how did it all begin? Okay. By the way, sometimes we think of, we talk about this sometimes. You know, that person fell into sin. Sin is not a fall. Sin is a is most of the time sin is a slow walk. You 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 slowly walk into sin. All right, you need to be aware of that because how did she begin? She begins by questioning the word of God. And then she soon is disregarding God's word altogether. And by the way, this is the way sin entered into the world. In fact, a man by the name of A.W. Pink said the will of God was resisted, the word of God was rejected, the way of God was deserted notice the progression there it starts with the will of God being resisted or being at least questioned beware when you start questioning God's word you're headed for destruction so Satan used in Eden what he continues to use today okay you say well what, what does this have to do with my life what, what does it have what is, how is this going to help me tomorrow morning when I wake up tomorrow morning I go to work or school or whatever I do how's this going to help me well Satan is still using the same tactics. He's been around a long time, but he hasn't changed things. This is a good thing to remember. Legitimate drives filled illegitimately is sin. That's what temptation is, all right? Legitimate drives filled illegitimately. In other words, if you're not understanding that, Satan is, what he does is he takes God's blessings, because he can't create anything, he just takes God's wonderful things he's created and then twists them and corrupts them. So he takes God's blessings and he tempts us to do things or not do things that are actually contrary to God's principles. All right? Things that are legitimate, but then he tempts you to fill those legitimate things in an illegitimate way or means. Well, what is temptation? Well, here's a definition I like. Temp- oh, it should be on the screen there. Temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. That's one way of looking at it. Temptation is a an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. For example, premarital sex is sin. Extramarital sex is sin. Why is that? Is it because all sex is sin? No. <laughs> it's not because sex is sin. God said the marriage bed is honorable. Sex is a God-given drive. God has given us that drive. So if you have it, God gave it to you. You need to think of that as something as normal. But what is not normal is when we try to fill that legitimate, uh, something that is legitimate in an illegitimate way. For example, having sex before you're married. God says don't do that. Or having extramarital sex. Having sex with someone else who is not your husband or your wife. God says that's sin. Why? Because God says you're only supposed to love the one you're married to. 
So sex is not the problem. Being t- uh, and so temptation is taking an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. Sex is a good thing, but it's bad when you do it outside of the person you're married to. Only to the one you're married to, God says. So think about Satan's deception here. Think about Satan's deception. Because Eve already had pleasure, Eve already had possessions, and Eve already had position. She already had all those things. Pleasure, possessions, and position. And Satan is causing her to covet something she already has. She already had all those things. She had everything in a perfect paradise, except one tree. She had all of the possessions that she possibly needed and wanted, and she had this wonderful position as the first woman that God ever created. (laughs) And Satan just takes God's wonderful blessings and twists them and corrupts them. He gets her to believe the lie. Well, number two, as we think about the fall of mankind, what happened here? Well, Eve's sin took four visible steps. Verse 6 shows us these four visible steps. First of all, it says that the woman saw. She saw. That's where it started. She saw with her eyes. And what we we need to to take note of this, because what we allow to come into the eye gate is very, very important. What was it? Job. I think it was Job says that he made a covenant with his eyes. You need to make a covenant with your eyes. You're not going to allow stuff to come in through the eye gate that Satan can use to destroy you. Number two, not only did she see, she took. That was the second step in verse 6. The woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make unwise. Then notice the next verb, the next action word, she took. So when, we're, when we lose the battle internally, you know what's going to happen next? It's only a matter of time you're going to lose the battle externally. Okay, when, when, when Satan attacks your mind, your body is under attack. Your actions are under attack. And in fact, I love the book John Bunyan. Not only did he write The Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote, he wrote The Holy War. And he talks about the battle for the city of Mansoul. And what did Satan attack? Well, he wasn't called Satan, by the way. I think he called him Apollyon. What did Apollyon first do when he attacked the city of Mansoul? In order to destroy the city of Mansoul, he took out the watchmen. He takes out the watchmen so he can attack the city of Mansoul. That's what he does with us. Guard your mind. Guard your heart. The one way to get our values right is to see the end, by the way. See the consequences of our sin. Uh, I had uh, There was one guy's blog I'd like to read. He said... Uh, he said, one thing that's going to help me not to ever to uh, commit the sin of adultery is write down all the consequences of what would happen in my life if I committed adultery. I looked at his list, and I started to meditate upon that. And you know what? Adultery is not appealing anymore. It is not appealing at all. When you look at all the consequences of, of sin, and you do this with other sins in your life, think of the end. Think of the consequences. You won't want to do it when you think of that. So she took, number three, she ate. So that's where it starts. It starts with the eyes, the mind, the heart. Then you take, then you then you eat. And then what did she do? It wasn't enough to just stop there. 
you end up influencing other people, and that's what she did. Notice the next verb in verse 6. She gave. That's the next verb. She gave. By the way, no one ever sins in a vacuum. You say, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, somebody, I forget who it was, one author a long time ago said, no man is an island. No man is an island. You don't sin in a vacuum, okay? Your sin affects other people. All right, you need to understand that. Her sin affected not only Adam, but all of humanity. God fashioned the woman to be her husband's complement and, and, and helper. And so what does Satan do? Satan takes something that's beautiful that God has made and manipulates the woman to be her husband's betrayer. Horrible, isn't it? The Bible says, by the way, that Eve was deceived. Adam wasn't. Read 1 Timothy chapter 2. Eve, or I say, Adam willfully, deliberately rebels against God. Why did he do that? Well, one of the reasons the Bible gives is because he he loved Eve. He loved Eve. He loved her too much. He should have loved God more than he loved his wife. But apparently he did not. Number three, as we think about the fall of mankind, what happened here? Well, as a result of this, when Adam sinned against God, we all became sinners and died spiritually. All of us. We're all separated from God, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And according to Romans 5, Adam is our representative head. He's our covenant head of all humanity, all of mankind. He represented the entire human race when he sinned. So if you're wondering, why is it that I was born a sinner? Because Adam represented you. The reason you're a sinner is because Adam sinned. You inherited your sin nature from your father, and he inherited his nature, sin nature from his father, and it goes all the way back to Adam. So we fell through the sin in the fall of our father, Adam. You say, that's horrible. It is. But while that's horrible, there are some things that we can also be thankful. Okay, let me, let me help you to take a lemon and make lemonade out of it, okay? It's way worse than a lemon, but think about this. Martin Luther, in fact, wrote a song, Oh, Blessed Fall. <laughs> oh, ble- wait a minute. Oh, Blessed Fall? The, man- the fall of mankind is the worst thing that's ever happened to us? How can you write a song called Oh, Blessed Fall? He did. And here's some things that he thought about, okay? Had there been no fall, there would, have always, there would have always been the possibility of one. If Adam and Eve didn't sin, you would have. Okay? You would have done it. But number two. Had there been no fall, we could never have known the wonders and beauties of redeeming love and saving grace. You know, the, the angels, they don't really understand what we just did this morning, singing songs like, Anne, Can It Be, at Calvary. You know, they, they don't understand that. They, they look at, at Jesus Christ Church, and they just they stare at us and wonder. They've never been redeemed. They've never been saved. You and I have been. Number three, had there been no fall, we could never have been brought into union with God in Christ. Angels don't experience that. Number four, since we fell by a representative, there is hope that we might rise again by another representative. You know, the Bible calls Jesus Christ the second Adam. Why is he called the second Adam? (laughs) Well, we read Romans chapter 5. Through one man's disobedience, that was the first Adam, 
you know, the whole, all of humanity, all of mankind suffered. But through one man's disobedience, or sorry, through one man's obedience, all were made righteous. That's through Jesus Christ. By the way, the fall of Adam was not an accident. Okay, again, uh, some people think God lost control. You know, he, you know, he somehow went to sleep in heaven, and when he woke up, he's like, oh, no, now what do I do? I didn't see that one coming. Some people believe that. The fall of Adam was not an accident. Either God could have prevented it or he could not. <laughs> Is he all-powerful or not? Of course he's all-powerful. He could have stopped it if he wanted to. And if he couldn't, then he's not God. If he's not all-powerful, he's not God. And, of course, this you know the entire Bible would be a myth if he's not all-powerful. Well, if he could stop it, why didn't he? He obviously didn't want to stop it for some reason, did he? It came a pass according to his will. Now, please understand, he does, God is not the author of sin, but he allowed this sin to take place. You say, why did God do this? It's the same two reasons. The same two reasons he does everything. You remember what those two reasons are? It's for his glory and your good. That's why God did it. That's why he permitted this. All right, number two. Roman number number two, Genesis 3 shows the great power and subtlety of Satan. Shows the great power and subtlety of Satan. He is one of our enemies. You need to be aware of this. You need to be aware of his power and his subtlety. And so here Satan appears for the very first time in the Bible. Romans, or sorry, Revelation makes it quite clear that the serpent is Satan. We learn of his prior existence, by the way, when you read Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28. We hear of his fall. He had an eye problem. He said, I will, I will, I will, at least five times in Isaiah chapter 14. He had pride. Now, I can't really begin to use language that is strong enough to describe just how crafty and deceitful and subtle in power Satan is. The Bible has all kinds of names for him that you need to be aware of. Those things help describe who he is and just how subtle and crafty he is. Let me just point out a few things you need to be aware of. Number one, he is too wise for us to outwit him without God's wisdom. He is very wise. <laughs> You'd be wise if you lived, you know, you know, six thousand, seven thousand years, however old the earth is. Satan was created, I should say he was originally created as Lucifer beginning somewhere somewhere in, in those six days of creation he was created as well so he's been around six to seven thousand years approximately and so as a result of that he's very wise you can't outwit him in your own strength you need God's wisdom number two he's too powerful for us to overcome apart from Jesus Christ he is more powerful than you be aware of that if you try to go against him on your own you will be defeated Jesus said, with me, all things are possible. And number three, he's too subtle for us to recognize him apart from the Holy Spirit revealing it to you. Without the Word of God we'd, and the Spirit of God, we'd, we'd have no hope in recognizing him because he'd come as an angel of light and you'd be deceived. But in this chapter, the Lord is revealing three things to us here about Satan that helps us to know who he is, his subtle ways, and how, what his power is like. So we need to be wise and understand them. Number one, 
the sphere of Satan's activity is in the spiritual and religious realm. The sphere of Satan's activity is in the spiritual and religious realm. Contrary to popular opinion, it is not Satan, but your natural depravity of the human heart that leads us into sin. The Bible mentions a lot of things, things like adultery, fornication, blasphemy, drunkenness, witchcraft, etc. In fact, Jesus talked about these things, and he said, what is it that causes us to sin? Well, look at Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. For from within, Jesus said, Jesus is speaking here, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Do you believe that? Because some people like to think, well, you know, I couldn't help myself. Satan made me do it. No. (laughs) Satan can't make you do anything. Satan will tempt you to do things, but it is your own evil, wicked heart that causes you to sin. That's what Jesus said. It is all these evil things come from within us. They are what are defiling us. So Satan's chief aim then is to get between you and God. He doesn't want you to see God. He doesn't want you to read the word. He keeps uh, us from our creator, from our maker. So his goal is to keep you from trusting in Jesus Christ. And the way he does that, by the way, is inspiring confidence in yourself. Humanism, evolution, okay? These are all things where we worship ourselves. Humanity worships themselves. Satan is causing us to do that. He seeks to usurp the place of God. What's God's place? He's number one. He's the only God. He is the one who is worthy of worship. What what does Satan do? He gets us to worship ourselves. So, by the way, his work often consists in substituting his own lies for the truth of God. So we need to be aware of this because sometimes, or I should say often, Satan is even at work within churches. Satan is at work on Christian radio, in Christian books, in Christian periodicals. Satan's at work in the pulpits of the world. Satan is at work in the seminaries of the world. He's at work in religious activities need to be aware of that. The Bible says he comes as an angel of light and he has his ministers doing their work even in the seminaries and the pulpits of the world. Beware. So the sphere of Satan, uh, the sphere of Satan's activities in the spiritual religious realm. Number two, the method of Satan's approach to our souls is the perversion of scripture and then he appeals to your flesh. That's what he did to Eve, right? He perverts scripture, and then he appeals to the flesh. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The three kinds of sins he's going to use in your life. So what did he do here? He threw doubt upon God's word. Then he substituted his own word for God's word. Then he casts a slur upon the attributes of God. He he, He tries to make God not look so good. Makes him look like the bad one. And then he appeals to our flesh. Once he dethrones God, then he tries to lift us up in God's place. 
So he, he often will do that through appealing through our bodily senses. Remember, he'll use your eyes. The eye gate is often the first means to get to your mind and your heart. He'll appeal through our, our fleshly emotions, the desires of our heart. He appeals to our intellect. Remember verse 6, to make one wise. And then he appeals to our pride. Because verse 5 says, he, he told Eve, you will be like God. Ooh. That's what Satan does. You need to be aware of his craftiness, his subtleness. But the good news is Satan's going to be destroyed by the power of God. We see that in verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, we see his, his demise, his destruction, because look what God said. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God said the seed of the woman was going to crush Satan's head. That's Satan's destruction. Yes, he's powerful, but God is more powerful. Satan's going to be destroyed by the power of God. When did that happen? It happened at the cross. The seed of the woman was Jesus Christ. He crushed Satan's head at the cross. God has done it through regeneration. Every time one of uh, an individual is regenerated, is made new, becomes a new creature, he crushes Satan. He does it in judgment as well. Satan's going to be destroyed. Everyone who rejects Jesus Christ is going to be judged and destroyed. Number three, third main point we see in Genesis 3 is Genesis 3 reveals the consequences of the fall. It reveals the consequences of the fall. This is good for us to think about because every time before you sin, when you're tempted to sin, you need to think about the consequences. It will help you not to sin. As soon as Adam sinned against God, he began to suffer the consequences of his sin. We see that happening here in verse, starting in verse 7. As soon, in verse 6, she gave to her husband, he ate, and immediately, verse 7, let's read verse 7. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. What's the first part here, okay? Let's, let's break each one of these phrases down, okay? Because this is, God's mentioning the consequences of the fall. Number one, there was knowledge. There was knowledge. The Bible says the eyes of both were opened. And by the way, their eyes were not enlightened. They were not illumined. The Bible says they were opened, and they weren't open to, to better things than they already knew. They acquired no advanced knowledge they didn't, they, they, there was nothing pleasant that they learned about. There was nothing profitable that they knew about. Instead, the, their eyes were opened only to evil things. But what was Satan's temptation? Eat of the fruit, take and eat it, and you're going you're gonna to know things you didn't know before. Was that true? Partly true. It was a half-truth. Yes, they learned things they didn't know before. But they weren't pleasant things. They were evil things. So part of the consequence of the fall was knowledge. Oh, Satan's good at this. He loves giving us half-truths. He deceives us with half-truths.
breakthroughs. And what did they lose? They lost the greatest treasure they had, communion with God. The greatest thing they had, and they lost it. Was that a good thing? No. That was a horrible thing. That's what Satan does to us. He destroys our fellowship with God through our sin. He tries to get us to think that our sin is good. And by the way, sin is pleasurable. But notice the Bible says sin is only pleasurable for a season, only for a little while. It doesn't last. So how do you defeat sin? Well, one author put it this way. You defeat sin with superior pleasure. You can't trick your mind into thinking the sin is not pleasurable. That's a lie. Sin is pleasurable, so you defeat it with a superior pleasure. The superior pleasure should have been communion with God. Their fellowship with God is the superior pleasure, and they lost it. So the first consequence of the fall was knowledge. Number two is shame. They knew that they were naked. So they were running around in the Garden of Eden naked, and it was a good thing. Because they weren't looking at each other with sinful eyes. But as soon as they sinned, their eyes now became sinful. They felt things they had never known and felt before. They they lost all of their innocence. And for the very first time, they, they actually looked at each other through corrupt, sinful eyes. Which is why it says they knew that they were naked. They didn't know that before. So in the process, guilt engulfed them shame embarrassed them and then and then as a result fear took over fear just terrified them they ran and hid and then verse 12 hatred arose within them hatred arose within them in verse 12 the man said the woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me of the tree and i ate adam's getting angry here hatred arising within him he's realizing okay this was stupid why did i listen to my wife Men have been asking that question ever since then, haven't they? So have, so have, well, so have the women. Why did we listen to our husbands? I know, it's, it's neutral, but anyway. So there was knowledge, there was shame, but number three, self-help. You say, well, self-help, is that a bad thing? In this case, it is. Part of the consequences of the fall was self-help. Because verse 7 says they, they, just, they, they ran, they hid, they were afraid. They started sewing these fig leaves together, and they made themselves a loincloth. They were covering the sexual organs of their body, which were good things that God had made. You say, why did they pick fig leaves? Apparently, they're big. I don't know. I've not actually seen one. Have any of you ever seen one? So if you, easiest thing to sew together, I guess, would be these nice big leaves, and that's apparently why they did it. But anyway, they're, they're, what are they doing here? They're trying to quiet their noisy soul, their, their noisy conscience that's been defiled. You know, if they, you know, if they can't see each other naked, well, then maybe that'll help their conscience. They're trying to cover their nakedness. They're trying to get rid of their shame, but they couldn't. They couldn't do it. They're trying to help themselves. And that's what we do, and that's a part of the, the consequences of the fall. When we sin, we try to help ourselves, but we can't. It doesn't work. Number four was fear. The fourth consequence of the fall is fear. Adam and his wife hid themselves from God. Read verses 8 and 10. Verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden 
in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Well, that's stupid, isn't it? When you think about it, they didn't really know God, did they? So fear, that's, that's the part of the consequence of the fall. Did they do that before they sinned? No. They walked with God. They communed and fellowshiped with him in the garden before they sinned. They loved him. They wanted to be with him. They looked forward to that moment every single day when God would come and commune with them. But now they're running and hiding. That's what sin does. Sin makes sinners want to hide. Why do you think so much sin takes place at nighttime? Because we want to try to cover our sin. So when they heard God's voice, they ran. The next consequence of the fall was self-preservation at everyone else's expense. <laughs> self-preservation at everyone else's expense. Look at verse 12. Here's what Adam says. He's talking to God, and he says, God, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. What is he doing? He's blame-shifting. Ultimately, he's blaming God, isn't he? God, you know, you messed up. You know, you, it's that woman whom you gave to me. She's the one who's just totally destroyed everything here. See, he's trying to preserve himself at everybody else's expense. And Eve does the same thing, by the way. She starts blame shifting too. Look at verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she does the same thing. But that's what sin does. We, yeah. <laughs> nice one. Self-preservation at everybody else's expense. When we sin, we start to love ourselves, and we'll step on everybody, and we'll destroy everybody in the process. And the last one here is God's curse. And we see God's curse in several different ways here. Uh, we see God's curse upon the serpent, upon the woman, and upon the man. But let's think about the first one here. God's curse, or the, the serpent was cursed. The serpent itself was cursed. You say, well, isn't he just an innocent bystander? Well, I don't know. Apparently not, because God curses him. Look at verse 14. Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now he's, now he's speaking to Satan here. Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head. The seed of the woman bruise Satan's head there crush his head and Satan would bruise the seed of the woman's heel which is more destructive the heel or the head <laughs> the head is more you know that's that's you don't want to get your head crushed because you're dead but if you bruise your heel you're going to be okay you might be in a little bit of pain but you're all right and that's what happened there here's the three points you need to see in the curse here the serpent was cursed. How was the serpent cursed? Number one, isolation. God isolated the serpent. He said, you are cursed above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. All of them. He isolated them. Number two, he humiliated him. Apparently, he didn't used to crawl on his belly because part of the curse was, on your belly you shall go. Which is why some commentators think maybe he had legs, maybe he stood up. Even some snakes, like cobras, you know, they kind of stand up, don't they? Uh, they don't have legs. 
Maybe they did. I don't know. But part of the, they were, in other words, he was humiliated. But there was also damnation because verse 15, he shall bruise your head. That's the ultimate destruction, the ultimate curse, damnation. But the woman was cursed as well in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Again, three points of the curse here is there was, number one, psychological trauma. There's psychological trauma going on here. God says, I will surely multiply your pain, or this translation says sorrow. When you have pain and sorrow multiplied, we're, we're talking about psychological trauma going on here. All right, there, there's, there's not good stuff going on in the head, if you will, as a result. When you're constantly in pain and sorrow, you know, eventually you know, some people get depressed and in despair and, and get to the lowest part of their life. But there was also physical trauma. There's pain in childbearing. Pain in childbearing. Some of you women know what that's like, don't you? Every time we had a child, I hated seeing what my wife went through. It's a horrible experience. You know, the blessed result in the end, but the process isn't nice, is it? But number three, there's an ongoing leadership struggle as a result of the consequences here of this of the fall. The curse, part of the curse, is the ongoing leadership struggle that goes on between a man and a woman. The Bible says, he shall rule over you. And women don't like that. Because we're sinful people, we don't like that. And because men are sinful, what do they want to do? They often want to dominate the woman and, and don't love the woman as God calls them to love the woman. Jesus said in Ephesians 5 that men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, but we don't do that. What are women supposed to do? They're supposed to submit to their husbands, but that's a hard thing to do because we're sinful people. <laughs> we're not Christ. But anyway, that's that ongoing leadership struggle. It's all part of the curse. But the man was also cursed, starting in verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, eaten of the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles which shall bring forth you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Four points of the curse here. Number one, barren soil. You ever wonder why you say, well, I don't have a green thumb. That's not your problem. Your problem is the curse. Not the fact you don't have a green thumb. Nobody has a green thumb. Unless you're really, really sick. you got gangrene going on there or something. No, the problem is, is God cursed the ground. Number two, th there's hostile plants now. There's plants that now, we, we have thorns and thistles, God says, that, are, that aren't very nice, are they? Those things hurt. And in fact, uh, I don't know if you, any of you ever experienced the stinging nettle that we have here in New Zealand? That thing's not very nice. I've been out hunting, and I've fallen in that stuff before. And then and then for the for the next three hours, you're trying to go to sleep after having fallen in that stuff because stinging, that'll constantly stinging you. It's not nice. God has now, as a result of the curse, has plants around the earth that, that hurt us. They're not very friendly to us. 
we call them hostile plants. But number three, then hard work. By the way, work is not a result of sin. Okay, some people think that it's not. There was sin in Genesis one and two. Or sorry, there was there was work that God gave to Adam in the garden before the fall. So please don't think of work, you know, as as you know, that's a result of the fall. It's not. It's not not the case at all. But now God says, by the sweat of your face. It's now by the sweat of your face. Hard work is going to come along. The ground is not going to give up its fruit and the vegetables and the, and the things that you need to survive as easily as they used to. And then number four is a decaying body. Do you feel that? I do every day of my life. I feel like I'm getting closer to the grave. I, I never have a day I feel good. That's a whole other issue, but maybe you maybe you don't feel as bad as I do. I hope you don't. But the, the reality is, even if you don't feel bad, you're still getting closer to the grave. Your body is decaying. You're getting older. And God said, till you return to the ground. That's what's happening. That's a result of the curse. By the way, it's interesting to compare the first Adam to the second Adam. The second Adam being Jesus Christ. Because here in Genesis, you have paradise, Right? Genesis chapter 3, paradise is destroyed. But if you go all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, you say you see paradise restored. It's interesting. Compare Genesis to Revelation. It's a very interesting comparison. Because you think about Adam, who is the, uh, of course, he's, you, know, you know who he is, the second Adam being Jesus Christ. What's the comparison? Adam, there's sorrow. For Christ, Isaiah 53 says he is the man of sorrows. For Adam there were thorns. Christ wore the very thorns of the curse as his crown. For Adam there was sweat. In the garden of Gethsemane, Christ sweat great, great drops. For Adam there was death. Christ suffered death so that he conquered death. Sorrow, thorns, sweat, death. All these sin has brought upon fallen mankind. And all of these Christ actually took upon himself. He bore the brunt of the consequences of, of sin. And praise God, because there's coming a day when, you know what? Revelation chapter 21 says, verse 4, there will, there's coming a day when there's not going to be any more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. It's coming, my friends. You're feeling the consequences of sin now, but there's coming a day when they will be gone. Why is that? Because Christ took on himself all the consequences of the curse, which we deserve. Well, the Bible also says they were driven from the presence of God. That's another part of the consequences. They were driven from the presence of God. Look at verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God set him, sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, he was driven from the presence of God. The Bible says they died spiritually. They began to die physically. And they were sentenced to die eternally. Do you understand there's three kinds of death? You need to understand that. Because some people believe the lie, well, see, nothing happened. They didn't die. So what God said was wrong. No. They died spiritually as soon as they sinned. 
They began to die physically. Granted, they lived longer than we do. But they were sentenced to die eternally as a result of their sin. Well, the last point is the gracious character of God. Genesis 3 reveals the gracious character of God. I'm just going to give it through a few highlights. I'm going to throw these highlights out to you. Please go back and study these on your own. And I think as you do, you're going to find great reasons to praise God. The gratitude in your heart will rise up. Number one, in Genesis 3, there's the first call of grace. There's the first call of grace here in Genesis 3. Look at verse 9. They've sinned. But what does God do? It says, verse 9, The Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? God could have left them on their own. By the way, this is not the voice of a policeman. This is not a policeman who's going around seeking the criminal after he's sinned. That's not the way God is here. Think of this as the voice of a loving father who is seeking a son who is lost. That's the way we need to think of this. God is gracious here. He's, he is seen here. His grace, I should say, is seen in, in his seeking and speaking to the one who has sinned and rebelled against him. God could have left him. By the way, God's justice cannot overlook sin. We see God's justice here. He doesn't overlook sin. God never overlooks sin. But we also see that God, he, he is sorrowful as he's grieving over the sinner here. But God's holiness seeks repentance. He is coming to Adam. He is seeking repentance. He's, he's trying to draw a confession and repentance out of Adam here. But we also see that God's love cannot be quenched. God loves the sinner. He hates the sin. So there's a call of grace. Number two, that we see the first gospel sermon in verse 15. Some call this the proto-evangelism, the, the first gospel, if you will. And it is the first gospel in the Bible. The preacher here is God himself. God is the one preaching. He says in verse 15, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. But you know what? God says, Jesus Christ, who is the seed of the woman, he's going to crush the head of Satan. That's the gospel. God himself is the preacher. The audience is a guilty, helpless pair of sinners. But you know what the subject is? The subject of the sermon is the redemption by Jesus Christ. Jesus buys us back from the slave market of sin. Number three, we see the first mention of the woman's name here. Not, a, not until verse 20 do you see the woman's name mentioned and their significance here. Because look what the Bible says in verse 20. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The, the, the name itself, Eve, means life giver. So Adam apparently heard the promise of verse 15, the first gospel in verse 15. He may have been discouraged, and I'm sure he was as a result of his sin. He's probably totally devastated as a result of, of the consequences of his sin, but he's not in total despair here. And we know he's not in total despair because we can see the promise he, he, sorry, he saw the promise of God and he's obviously believing the promise of God to give Eve, to give his wife's name Eve, life giver. And the last point we need to make is 
or sorry, not the last one, but letter D. We see here the first portrayal of redemption by Christ. We see redemption by Christ in verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. You say, I don't get it. How is that the first portrayal of redemption? Well, what do we have here? First of all, we have a guilty pair of, who are under the sentence of death. They're standing before a holy God. They know they're guilty. They have no hope except God made a sacrifice of blood for them. You say, how do you know it was a sacrifice of blood? How do you get the skins off without killing the animals? How do you get the skins off animals without killing them? God had to kill these animals. This is the first time death takes place in in the world. He kills these animals so that they would have a proper covering. So he strips away their personal righteousness. What's their personal righteousness represented as? The fig leaves. That's their personal righteousness. Their their self-righteousness is represented in the fig leaves. That's what we tend to do. We try to cover ourselves. We try to take care of our sin in our own means, our own ways, our own self-righteousness. God comes along. He strips off the fig leaves and gives them the skins of animals. And he had to kill those animals in order to give them the skins. This is a portrayal of redemption by Christ. So covering was made and it was given to the first human beings here. And it's done without without their their aid. They're doing absolutely nothing to cover themselves here. Adam and Eve were totally passive in the process. Adam and Eve aren't the ones who killed the animals. Adam and Eve aren't the ones who covered themselves. God covered them. He strips away their self-righteousness and gives them the proper righteousness. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You can't save yourself. Your good works will never save yourself. Oh, we try to cover ourselves. We try to sew fig leaves together all the time, don't we? We try to cover ourselves with things that do not cover ourselves. Instead, we need to go by grace through faith in Christ to really cover ourselves. The last point we make from the passage is here's the first description of man's lost condition. What is man's lost condition? Well, look at verse 24. The Bible says that he, God, drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword was turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we see here mankind is, is separated from God, separated from God's blessing, barred from God by the sword of justice. By the way, did you notice it mentions cherubim there? What was on the top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies? Cherubim. What did they have to put on the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant? Blood. Blood. That's how you get back to God. That's how you get back to God. It's through the sacrifice of blood. They were incapable of returning to God, but what did God do? God provided the way back to himself. God provided the way back to himself. Notice there's a cross across the chasm. The chasm leads to eternal death, and the only way to get 
across the chasm to eternal life to God is through the cross of Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. You can't get to the Father except through me. And then God provided the way back to the tree of life. Did you know this isn't the only time the tree of life is mentioned in the Bible? Again, notice the comparison, Genesis to Revelation. If you read Revelation chapter 22, you see the tree of life is mentioned again. God provided the way back to the tree of life. God separated them as a result of sin, but when but when we, we are now made holy, as God is holy, God allows us to partake of the tree of life. Look what Revelation 22 says. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the midst of the street of the city. What city is that? This is the New Jerusalem. It says, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The tree of life is in heaven. And everyone who is made holy will be able to partake of that tree of life again. But how is that made possible? Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. How do you, you say we're, we're going to wear robes in heaven? Yes. You get, to, you get to wear white robes in heaven. How do you get a white robe? You only get a white robe by washing it in red blood. You say, that's weird. That's what the Bible says. Your robe will have to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ so that you have white robes. And God will impute the righteousness of Christ to you. That's how you get to heaven. And that's how you will come back and, and, and God will then be able to provide the way back to the tree of life for you. May God help us to understand what our greatest problem is. It's sin. May God help us to understand what is the solution to our greatest problem. The solution is to believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.